Hello, sports fans, and welcome to another edition of Yesterday Sports on the Sports History Network. And make sure to check out sportshistorynetwork.com slash giveaways. I have two signed books I'm giving away. One is titled No Nonsense Old School Weight Training, and the other is Reliving 1970s Old School Football. In this episode, we get to talk about a legendary college and pro football Hall of Fame quarterback with his daughter, who has recently wrote a book about him and released it. We have this story and more coming up in just a moment. This is the Pigskin Daily History Dispatch, a podcast that covers the anniversaries of American football events throughout history on a day-to-day basis. Your host, Darren Hayes, is podcasting from America's North Shore to bring you the memories of the gridiron one day at a time. So as we come out of the tunnel of the Sports History Network, let's take the field and go no huddle through the portal of positive gridiron history with pigskindispatch.com. This podcast is part of the Sports History Network, your headquarters for the yesteryear of your favorite sport. You can learn more at sportshistorynetwork.com. Hello, my football friends. This is Darren Hayes of pigskindispatch.com. Welcome once again to the Pigpen, your portal to positive football history. And boy, do we have a great episode tonight. We're going to be talking to an author that wrote a book, and a book that's very personal to her. Uh, the book's title is The Dutchman and the Portland's Finest Rose, a love story inspired by the life and football legend Norm Van Brocklin. Karen J. Vanderwright is her name, daughter of Norm Van Brocklin. Uh, Karen, welcome to the Pigpen. Thanks for having me, Darren. I look forward to uh, visiting with you about the book. Yeah, Karen, this this book was very exciting. I I just got done reading it today. Uh, I love doing that, so it's very fresh in my mind. And this is one that really I got attached to and got really engrossed into. And, you know, that's a sign of great writing. So you did a very good job on this book. I appreciate it very much. Thank you. Now, Karen, okay, we sort of gave away that you were the, the daughter of Norm Van Brocklin mm-hmm. and your mother was Gloria Shiwi. And, uh, you know, they were a very loving married couple, as you make evident in the book. And why don't you uh, give us a little bit of some uh, more background on yourself? Well, I came to writing much later in my life, um, uh, but it was really as my mother was quite ill I sort of I rediscovered or I discovered love letters that my father had written to my mother and um, I was the oldest of um, my sisters and I had two brothers and um, when I discovered them it was kind of like do I read them do I not read them what do I do with them and um, I kept them and I I did read the uh, I read the top one and it was kind of an overwhelming time for me so I read them I cried you know I put them back together I put the little piece of twine around the letters that's how my mother had them all stacked together and little piece of twine and it wasn't till years later after I had lost my husband to cancer that I rediscovered them. And then it was like that moment where you just have to decide, what do I do? What what do I do with them? You know, it's like they had a voice, they had a message. Um, I couldn't not pay attention to them. And that led me to 
reading each letter, putting him in order, and what sort of was apparent to me was my parents' early history together and at the University of Oregon, and um, which is where they met. They both were students, and it led me to doing research and reaching out to people at the University of Oregon and people he played with and um, children of the players that that was on the same team that provided information and um, scrapbooks and just a wealth of information. And for me, it just, this was a wonderful, it was a six year journey that I took. And um, it, it was gratifying to me but i i think i'm i have gotten some positive feedback just as you have shared that it's a lovely love story and and more than that it's sort of a window in time it's a slice in time and i think you know sometimes to take a break and sort of pause and look back is is sort of good for all of us so that was my moment well, you you did it very excellently, and your parents. Um, it was very interesting. You make this point in the book. There's many times uh, where they were away from each other, where they promised each other they would write every day. So you mm-hmm. had almost like a journal entry for some periods of, the, of their uh, relationship together of a daily exactly. event. Yeah. Well, and it gave me a framework, right? Because though it was very personal, there were there were enough snippets of facts that would led me to, you know, the research. So uh, it was very helpful. And, um, you know, I, I, I recognized many of the names that they talked about, you know, as players that were on the team, you know, 47, 48, 49. And uh, uh, so that was kind of cool, too. Yeah, it's, it's uh, you know, just so the listeners understand this, um, you know, and I don't think I'm giving away anything here. You you yeah. have uh, 53 chapters in the book, and there's only two of the chapters that I'm aware of where you would have been in the picture. You would have been alive during. So most of this is, you know, prior to your birth. Yes. And, yes. Uh, you know, before you were, you know, with your parents' relationship. And that's uh, right. that is just such a cool thing that you were able to get that much detail and from these letters and and putting the pieces together, like you said, which is very interesting. So I guess, I guess, what, I guess the first thing we got to start off with is your parents met at the University of Oregon, like you said, but it was kind of a, a unique meeting, uh, something mm-hmm. that you don't hear very often. And uh, it's, I, th- I thought it was very romantic and uh, sort of a beautiful way that they met and mm-hmm. uh, kind of unique, if you don't mind sharing that. No, it was beautiful. Uh, so my father um, had just, uh, the World War II had just ended. Uh, he, uh, though he was a an excellent athlete in high school in California. Uh, you know, back in the day, there weren't scholarships. There weren't, you know, he didn't have any promised positions at any one school, but he was well known as a pitcher at Acalanus High School and also a halfback. And what I, what was eye opening to me is that I always assumed that my dad, since he was a Hall of Famer later, you know, an All-American and NFL Hall of Famer, that he just, you know, there was a spot waiting for him. He was a sixth string walk-on as a halfback at the University of Oregon. He'd never shared that information with me. So anyway, he 
he followed a couple of classmates from Akalanas High School. He had just been discharged from the Navy. It was January. Um, he walked on campus, and as he was trying to find his way to his first class, he bumped into my mother underneath this big, it's a big um, oak leaf maple, and big leaf maple tree right in front of Dee Dee Hall. It's since, since been renamed. I don't recall the new name, but that was one of the original buildings on the main quad at the University of Oregon. And it's where the science classes were held. And um, they both claimed that it was love at first sight. So that's how they met. And now uh, after, after they both have passed away. Um, my sisters and I and my brothers have all dedicated a bench that has their name on it that recognizes that or, you know, um, makes mention of that meeting and honors their their life. And um, it has their birth date and when they graduated from the University of Oregon and this beautiful bench with a plaque. And, and you have a photograph of that in the book. So that's the actual yes. tree that they met under. And I know they had a, yeah. a couple tender moments uh, throughout the book under that, that same yes. tree that you mentioned, that same which tree. kept yeah. uh, returning back to that point, which I thought was a, a great uh, site. And, yeah. uh, you know, so, so I, I was going to ask you about that. So I'm glad you clarified that. I was wondering if that was possibly the tree. So very, yeah, very it's good. still there. And the bench is still there and the plaque is still there. <laughs> <laughs> Very, very neat. Now, yeah. So I, I found it interesting too. That's something, you know, you were surprised. I was surprised that your dad was a walk on and, and from his own commentary that you wrote in the book, he was unsure if he was even going to make the team. And there's oh, a yeah. good period of the book where it's unclear if he's going to be on Oregon's team that year under yeah. his, uh, his original coach at Oregon was Tex Oliver. And, right. uh, he sort of had, a. uh, love-hate relationship, I guess, especially maybe mm -hmm. not hate, but uh, it was yeah. kind of a, a roller coaster ride relationship, yeah. I guess. And uh, maybe you could talk a little bit about that, uh, you know, what your your dad was immersed to as he, he joined uh, Oregon's football uh, team. As a well, I think, and he, he always did pay uh, um, uh, a lot of respect to Jim Aiken, who was the coach that came in the very next season. And, um, you know, at that time, <clears throat> excuse me, in the NFL, you know, it's pretty much a, a running game. And um, so there was a position called the quarterback, but that a quarterback typically ran, you know, it's kind of like an option play, right? Mm -hmm. uh, there wasn't a lot of passing. And I, I believe it was Stanford at the time was starting to uh, throw in some passing plays. And Jim Aiken, who came from the East Coast, uh, I think it was called William, not William and Mary, but oh, he was at Washington and Jefferson. Lee. Yeah. Washington Jefferson. That's it. Right. And I'm, I'm, uh, I'm in Western Pennsylvania. So that's right down the road from us. That's oh, not too okay. far. It's a couple hours away. Oh, okay. <laughs> and so he, I think he was intrigued with that type of offense and he brought it with him to the university of Oregon. And, um, you know, it was spring training and they're all out there, you know, running plays and, doing all their thing. And it was evident that my dad had a, a great arm. So it was just one of those uh, synergistic moments, right? Or serendipitous moments that um, uh, they started, you know, let me see what you got kind of a thing. And my dad was 
known for being able to throw a long ball, but also uh, I think it was Tommy McDonald used to say, you know, just drop it in your hands, you know. Um, so he had great touch on the ball. And he also just had an uncanny um, understanding of defenses. So he, he, I could kind of see what was going on in the field. And he was very adept at kind of changing things at the last minute. And um, so Jim Aiken coming to Oregon really is what enabled my father, I think, to have the success he did both in college, but also in the pros. Yeah. And he didn't always have a great relationship with Aiken too. As a matter of fact, I, I yeah. think uh, at one point your, your mother and father were both a little bit upset with coach Aiken and mm-hmm. uh, for a big momentous occasion in their lives. And maybe yeah. you could chat about that a bit. <laughs> yeah. So, uh, well, my mother was two years older than my father. Um, and, and I, I hope this comes across in the book too. Um she was very she was a very serious student she was a very intellectual person and her plan before bumping into my dad underneath the you know maple tree was to become a physician so we're talking 1946 right so mm-hmm. not very many women were even accepted into medical school um but that was her plan and um she had to kind of navigate that and being two years ahead of my dad, my dad was a freshman. She was um, a junior and um, she, you know, in that period of time trying to figure out what she wanted to do, she ended up taking a job up in Portland. Well, dad was still on campus playing football and getting his C, you know, keeping a C average going um, you know, she decided that, um, you know, her heart went over her, I guess her mind. (laughs) And, but she, um, you know, I hope people kind of appreciate what it was like for women in that, that time. Um, yeah, you, you make a great, great point of it. Cause I think there's one point in the book where your mother's worried that now f- uh, that there's men coming back from the war, yes, that she might not get into medical school because right. of being uh, a woman, right? And 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 as as it turned out, she never did apply to medical school. She did apply to physical therapy school at Stanford and got accepted, and never told my dad that she applied nor that she got accepted. And um, you know, I don't know if. He- he ever knew that now that I think about it, hmm. I don't know. Um, but at any rate, the, to get back to Jim Aiken, um, they decided that they couldn't live apart from each other anymore. She'd taken a position at the um, hospital in Portland working in the lab and he was still back on campus. And, you know, it was like, that wasn't going to work. They needed to get married. And Jim Aiken's point uh, opinion was, no, you know, your concentration needs to be totally on football and, you know, that's where all your dedication needs to go to. So, um, you know, they, they, they did go ahead and get married and it was kind of like, that's what we're going to do. But their opinion of them was not that high at that moment, but you know, they made it work. 
you know, and, and of course, Jim Aiken needed his quarterback. So <laughs> the whole dynamic of everything going on, because this was, uh, you know, he wasn't sure he was going to make the team. And all of a sudden, you know, he becomes Aiken's quarterback, you know, Oliver, right. you, you made it seem like Oliver really didn't give me much attention, but there were spots where uh, coach Oliver would say things to your dad. Hey, I've been watching you throw passes in practice. Mm-hmm. And I've been doing mm-hmm. this, you know, when your dad thought he would, had turned his back and was paying mm-hmm. him, no, never mind. But uh, I thought that was interesting. Now your dad did such a, a a great job of being a role model on how to court uh, somebody he's in love with. And I, I thought <laughs> that this was very admirable the whole way. He was very patient. He did all the right things. He had a, a great relationship with your grandparents uh, mm-hmm. who lived up in, in uh, Portland. different, different uh, Portland, Oregon, different part mm-hmm. of Oregon. And mm-hmm. how, how far away was that from the university of Oregon? Was that, it had to be. Some well, distance. today's, today's time. It's about an hour and a half drive, you know, and it's freeway. So, uh, you know, it only takes about an hour and a half, but back when they were in college, you know, you had to take the bus. I mean, my parents didn't have cars. Uh, so that's how they got back and forth. Or, uh, if they were lucky enough to have a friend that had a car, they would, you know, bum a ride with somebody back and forth. So it wasn't as easy as as it is today. <laughs> yeah, that's that's for sure. And they, and they traveled quite a bit. You you have them going back and forth quite a bit, uh, visiting your grandparents up, up in uh, Portland, Portland, and mm-hmm. uh, you know by train. And but your parents uh, through their dating life and uh, you know their early married life, they didn't have a, a great financial wealth to be doing things. They really had to scrape things together, and right. they they always seemed to manage it. And your your dad, you know, did such a wonderful job of going up and uh, you know. And your grandparents, you know, reciprocating with, you know, the love that they had both for their future son-in-law and son-in-law once they were mm-hmm. married, along mm-hmm. with their daughter. And I thought that was just a, a beautiful thing in the relationship that they all had. Yeah, they were very, um, well, you know, it's different times, right? They all had survived the Depression. Both my parents were um, children of the Depression. And neither, my father grew up in abject poverty. So, um it's really a grapes of wrath story um, that, you know, they all um, left the plains of South Dakota in a flatbed truck, nine children, my grandparents, nine children, whatever could fit on the truck and drove across to Walnut Creek, California. Now, Walnut Creek, California now is like a bedroom community, you know, for the Bay Area. But at the time, it was one of these um like Hoover towns, you know, they lived in a, a, a tent with a wood burning stove. They all, whatever the crop was in at the time, that's what they all did. My dad was five. He, even at five, he was climbing trees, picking fruit or picking whatever was, you know, the crop was at the time. So as a family, it took a family unit to survive, you know, and um, that is sort of, I think that translated into um, how we viewed playing football. Uh, you know, in the, the war, you had to be a team. You know, when you were in the Navy, you had to be te- a team to survive. When you came back, you walked on the field as a, a walk-on a football field. You had to work as a team to win games. And that really was his philosophy as a coach, you know, 
Um, I don't know if it translates as easily today, but back then, you know, that was kind of the mentality. Well, I, I think you you see a lot of that success on in all sports teams. You're know, working as a yeah. team, working like a family unit. Um, and mm-hmm. and your your parents, you know, definitely did that. They worked together as a team, and you know, they like we said, they didn't have a lot financially going on. They were scraping together things, but these poor kids, you know, just getting married, you know, uh, just bearing with daily life and trying to get by just ha- seemed to have tragedy after tragedy after tragedy. And, but they kept pulling themselves together and the rest of your family, your, your, your grandmother's, uh, you know, helping mm-hmm. out and things like that. But maybe you could mm-hmm. just describe some of the, uh, uh, you know, very emotional, uh, happenings that were, were going on in, in their early marriage. Um, yes, well, my, and I think this, this was a very tough time for my mother, uh, but her, her father, who uh, Herbert was his name, and this is still, you know, uh, not uncommon uh, when you, in Oregon, often he was a, a loggerman and during the logging season and a fisherman in the fishing season. And you still sort of see that dynamic even t- today. Um, and, you know, he, he made ends meet and my grandmother was a very resourceful person and uh, she was a homemaker. She did sewing on the side to keep things going. Um, and they had a beautiful, that was always my sense that they always had a very, loving um relationship and my father was very drawn to that as well and he loved his father-in-law herb and they fished together and um just got along famously but he tragically and i won't tell the whole story but um he tragically was out and he never never used to go fishing um this time of year, February, it was, uh, water can be very treacherous. The Columbia river is one of the most, um, difficult rivers to navigate at the mouth. It's a very wide expanse and the tides. There's a lot of variation in the tides, which creates, you got to know what you're doing. And there's a bar out there, big sandbar. And, um, a huge storm came in, uh, Northwesterly storm came in, um, then we don't have, you know, we don't have the the instrumentation we have today that would have said don't go out. But anyway, he did. He he went out to um, help a f- colleague of his who was down and out, and he was trying to help him with a catch so that he could kind of true up his bank account accounts and uh, um, the storm ended up capsizing the boat. There was some uh, radio uh, communication, so my grandmother was able to hear some of that. Um, but the reality is the boat was never found. The men on the boat were never found. There was no wreckage. So my mother was only in her early 20s at this point, and it scarred her for life. It was like he was there one day and gone the next and my grandfather I never met him of course I wasn't born yet but um, he really was instrumental in encouraging my mother to 
pursue academics. And I think when, you know, when he was gone, there was, it was a huge void for her and my grandmother, of course, and my father. If I take the element out of this being a true story and I just look at the characters of your grandfather, Herb, and, mm-hmm. and your father's character, Stubb, who who uh, mm-hmm. was affectionately called by friends and family, um, mm-hmm. I almost see a, a foreshadowing of your father and your grandfather. You know, I think your they seemed very similar. Uh, they were they were men's men. They oh, yeah. they did manly things. They hunted. They fished. They you know did manual uh, playing football. Very manual things, but they were very tender in the home uh, to the family, and mm-hmm. you know very supportive of the family. And I I think you know so I'm not sure. If maybe you're you're they were just both the, that same breed, or maybe your your grandfather was such a role model to your father, like you said, and uh, he, he adopted a lot of that practice. I think there's something to be said for that because I. Uh, Though I did my, know my grand grandpa Van, um, I was pretty young when he passed away. My sense of him and what other family members have said, I mean, though he was a hardworking man, um, you know, just a, 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 a very wonderful man. I mean, he had nine mouths to feed. You know? Yeah, that's, that's a um, lot. <laughs> yeah. That's a lot. Uh, a very hardworking man, but, I, you know, he was kind of a humorless person you know he was he was he was a tough he was tough and my dad was the eighth of nine children you know so you know I don't think a lot of attention got paid to him I think his older sisters basically you know reared my dad you know and when you're that far down the food chain you know you just sort of everybody sort of pushes you along but I think what he saw in my his father-in-law was um as somebody that really uh, was a role model for him. And I think he truly respected him as a result of that. And he adored my mother. My my mother, um, you know, he just, he was just in awe of her. <laughs> and you make that very clear. And I think she must have been very in awe of him as well, because there's yes, she very, was. very much a lot of tender moments uh, where, you know, you refer to his when you're looking through her eyes into his eyes of, you know, the the sparkling blue eyes and things, Mm -hmm. you know, very descriptive and you could tell it's a very loving and and, uh, great relationship that they had and they needed to be because, you know, not only, you know, the loss of your grandfather at sea, but your, your mother had some, some personal tragedies of of losing a a couple of babies along the way too, during that same Mm -hmm. time. Mm-hmm. So it had to be very traumatic and they, they really held together. And I, I almost wonder, um, and maybe, I'm not sure if you intended this or, or maybe this is just the, what your father was, but he sort of adopted that, that role of, you know, helping to get the family through it when you're, when your your mom was down and, you know, I'm mm-hmm. sure it's very, uh, depressing and melancholy when, when you lose a child like that. And, you know, your, your father sort of try to pick her spirits up, give her her space that she needed, pick her spirits up, you know, mm-hmm. give her a hug when she needed it, uh, you know, do what he could to, to get things by. But he also sort of adopted that into the football field too, when things were down, of course, you know, he would get frustrated when somebody would drop a pass or he'd throw an interception or anything, but he sort of had that same attitude and, uh, from, from what I gather from the book that he would, uh, you know, try to keep the troops together and talk to the yeah. guys in the huddle and keep things going. There's no question about that. Um, you know, my mother was much more of a realist and kind of a practical person. My father was 
my father never knew a stranger. I don't know if that part of that is just sort of being from a large family or or what it is, but my father just always had that um, attitude that you could do, be whatever you chose to be if you just worked hard enough. And um, as I've said, my mother was much more serious minded. My dad was much more humorous and saw the humor in a lot of things. And I think that's part of what made their relationship a very uh, special one is that they each supported each other. And my dad had sort of a contentious relationship with the media during his playing career, in particular, his coaching career. Um, and my mother was like his biggest, you know, cheerleader and advocate. And she was, uh, you know, so it's kind of like the roles reversed then, you know, mm-hmm. early on, it was more of my father kind of like, come on, Gloria, you could do this, you can do whatever you want, <laughs> you want to do or whatever. And, you know, Later in life, it was more my mom. Come on, Stub, you know, get yourself together here. Kind of thing. What a trooper your mother must have been, because it's you ah. know, the the weather. Uh, I mean, you you talk about many times your your father's cursing the field at Oregon. It's a mud hole, and sort of yeah. every field that he played, even at uh, you know Oregon State when they played there, I think he refers to that as a mud hole too, because it just rains all the time there in the, the Northwest yeah. Central um, Valley. Yeah. She sits there through game after game, you know, many of these home games and some of the games that were close by and this, this torrential downpours at times. And uh, mm-hmm. boy, what a trooper she had to be to, to sit there and support him like that. Oh, yeah. Which reminds me of sitting in Metropolitan Stadium in Minneapolis before they made, had the dome. Right. So we used <laughs> to sit out in 30 degree, what, 30 below zero with sleeping bags on. Oh, yeah, it gets cold. Parkers <laughs> and whatever. Yeah. So, yeah. <laughs> Once a football fan, always a football fan. I guess so. Now, your father, he's in Pro Football Hall of Fame. He's in a College Football Hall of Fame. He's a stud, but you know that you're good when you have multiple nicknames that people call you. Now, I'm just going to name off a few <laughs> of these names that uh, that you, you call them in the book. You know, of course, Norm, <laughs> people called him. Van. For his last name, Stub, which we already talked about. Mm-hmm. Uh, some of the newspapers called him the Cinderella Boy at one point. Yeah, uh, the Dutchman, which many of us know, and that's the title of your book as the Dutchman. Right. Just so you you know that he had to be good and had to be well liked by his teammates and the you know, the media and everybody that they have this many nicknames. Yeah, I I, I think so. Um, and you know, he was very charismatic. Uh, so, you know, he obviously drew attention to himself, um, but he could back it up, you know, and, um, and I think he was a natural leader on the field, um, and getting back to that, that, um, his personality, you know, he never gave up. And that's one thing I realized, um, kind of researching his Oregon days, there were particularly that last year, uh, 48. There are many times they were behind going into the fourth quarter and somehow it was like always pulled it out, you know, and they uh, so there was sort of this attitude that, you know, you can't give up. You, you know, they're going to pull it out. You know, we'll we'll figure it out. We're we're going to find what the weaknesses with the defense. And then, you know, we'll you know, but I think that's sort of uh, that was sort of a part of his uh, professional career, too. Um, you know, he's real good about being patient about figuring out what weaknesses were. And then, and, oh, that brings me to a great 
story. I got to uh, interview Bob Sanders. He was a running back, a fullback at the University of Oregon. And I was fortunate to interview him before he um, passed away. And he told me about this one play, which I write about in the book. And he's, and I don't remember the team now, but in his way, he said, your dad kept calling the same play. It was like off tackle writer, you know, whatever. And we just ran it play after play after play and and get back in the hole and your dad would call again and he said well we're we're getting three and four yards every other every single time why would we quit running <laughs> we'll wear him down you know <laughs> <laughs> and uh, bob said that's when your dad started calling me the blaster that was his nickname so dad was good about giving nicknames too <laughs> Uh, I guess it takes one to know one here to, to dish it yeah. out. And he seemed to really have a, a great rapport with the guys. I mean, I, I I love the scene when he first shows up at campus at the practice field. Your mother sort of takes him a, a long way around to get him to the campus to spend more time with them yeah. as they're, they're courting there and getting to know yeah. each other. And he gets to the field and uh, maybe he knows a few of the guys, like you said, but they're, they're sort of ribbon. He's just trying to find where the coach's office are and they're sort of giving him yeah. the business a little bit. He gives a little bit back to him as, as he goes in there. I think he gained a little bit of respect from his teammates in doing so. Yeah. Well, that's part, you know, that's, that's part of sports, right? You just, you know, right. It's, I, that's how God, I mean, I shouldn't say just guys, but you know, that's how you kind of assess each other right you know you, you give a little you get a little kind of thing right but, gotta, it's always fun to give somebody the business isn't it the, yeah there you the, go the, the, See, can he that. take it can he not take it yeah right <laughs> so okay i guess everything in his career and sort of the flow of the book it comes to this period of time 1948 it's uh mm -hmm. you know a season of, of promise for uh the oregon ducks Coach Coach um, Oliver just he stepped down. Coach Aiken comes in. He's you know the guys have been working hard all year. This core group of guys that have been together for a couple years now are sort of coming into their own, and they're mm -hmm. they're veterans. There's a you know mix of young players, war veterans like your father and some of the other guys, and they're they're really putting together a great season. And uh, you know game after game, like you said, they're behind in games or coming back, and you know they're, it's kind of expected that they're going to come back, and then they they come into a buzzsaw of the the uh, national champions from the previous year, the the Michigan Wolverines, when they go and play them, and just sort of I think it's sort of a light bulb moment for them that hey, you know this team's uh, we're good, but maybe this is a, a national one we need to aspire to is what what mm -hmm. Michigan's doing. I mm -hmm. sort of think that was a great point in the book where you talked about. Mm -hmm. Well, they that was their only only defeat, and it wasn't in conference, but it was kind of like, well, we only lost by, I, I don't remember the score now. It was like, I don't know, I think a touchdown. It was a yeah, pretty I think close it was just game. just one score game. Yeah, and it was kind of like, well, if we can hang with the national champions, then you know, so I think it sort of set the tone for the rest of the season, unlike. Oregon playing the University of Georgia this year, <laughs> <laughs> yeah. I, you know, and I went to that game and it was kind of like, welcome to the SEC. You know? <laughs> <laughs> okay. Now, uh, that's an interesting thing. So here you yeah. are, you were, I mean, you have definitely have connections to the University of Oregon. You're, both your parents went yeah. there. You, you live in Georgia now. So I'm assuming right. you're, you're Bulldogs fan. Yeah, and, uh, sure. So, so that had to be sort of a bittersweet moment with those two teams playing. Who, who were you rooting for in that game? Oh, well, I mean, 
obviously my heart was with the ducks, of course, but I mean, you know, I know the talent that's at Georgia, you know, yeah, it's, and it was, it's, it, they're just a phenomenal team. And they've uh, last couple of seasons, they've had a phenomenal team, but you know, the ducks are great. They, 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 they managed to put together wonderful teams year after year, but I have to say, you know, the SEC is some pretty serious football. It, it definitely is. And I'm a Pittsburgh Steelers fan, so I can appreciate the Georgia Bulldogs because the last two years we've got some great uh, draft picks. There you go. With with two of them <laughs> in the last year with the, the receiver picking. So that's uh, great stuff. So, yeah. So, okay. So they go through this, this regular season. They lose to Michigan. Well, then they sort of have a one focus of they want to represent the Pac-8 at the time, the conference that they played in, right. I believe it was a Pac-8, they were called yes, then. They change their names all the time, like the weather, I think. Right, right, there. right. But uh, they had the goal of being the representative in the Rose Bowl. That was sort of their main focal their point. Their goal, yeah. And they, they wanted to win as many games as they could. And actually, they had to win all the games after losing to Michigan, I believe, uh, mm-hmm. as you state in the book. And so they they do that. They succeed. They win all the games. And you, you have great, uh, you know, um, play action and things happening in the game, a great write-up of each, each game. And, you know, some of them are in great detail and, you know, really get me into the flow of the game as a reader and say, mm-hmm. boy, I, I felt like I was there, you know, some 70, 80 years ago, whenever this was, you know, to, to be at that game. And it was just uh, fantastic. The civil war of Oregon, which is Oregon, Oregon state. Right. And, uh, the uh, Beavers had won nine straight over your, your dad's team. Maybe, maybe you could describe that moment uh, of that season finale. Well, so at this point, you know, the expectation was in conference, they were undefeated. So once they defeated um, Oregon State, the assumption was they would get chosen to represent the Pac-8 in the Rose Bowl. And uh, and I didn't know this story either. So this was uh, this was um, interesting to learn. To this day, there are not very many University of Oregon <laughs> alumni that don't know this story. Uh, to this day, they have quite a bit of animosity to the University of Washington because back then, how they chose the bowl representatives, each team had one vote they had one person as a vote and it typically would be a professor or whatever whoever they chose as a representative so each school had one vote and so the pack eight you know there's there's the california schools and then there's the northwestern schools and um what happened was washington that this is what they found out later wasn't apparent at the time but that washington had voted for uh, California, uh, was it University of California to go mm-hmm. over the Ducks, and it was like that was like heresy. No, you know we stick together. You know, so the <laughs> the Oregon usually would be Oregon, Washington, Idaho, all stuck together, and then there was California. You know, and so as it was, um, Oregon was not chosen to represent the Pac-8 in the Rose Bowl. And that just was, I mean, the the whole campus exploded over that. And, uh, but, you know, it's like anything in life, right? That door closed, but another door opened. And it was also an opportunity um, that had never been offered to the University of Oregon, which was a bid to go to the Cotton Bowl. 
Yeah, and that uh, that bid was you know very, like you said, it was the first time it ever happened, but it brought mm-hmm. its own problems because yeah. at the time this was happening, there were some some Jim Crow laws and some yes. some other things with the uh, racial tension, especially in the South where this game's played in, near Dallas, Texas, right. and uh, your dad was really, and along with some other teammates, was really. Uh, a proponent of of helping some of his teammates uh, to be able to participate. And maybe you could yes. speak to that a bit. Yeah. So there were um, four uh, black players on the roster at the University of Oregon, uh, two of whom were uh, excellent track. They were uh, runners on the track team. You know, U- University of Oregon has always had a very strong track team. And um, so they ran track and they also played football and um so when the bid was extended to the university of oregon it was like yeah we we would like for you to play in the cotton bowl but you can't bring bring your you know black players with you and the precedent had already been set a year before that that would be acceptable so oregon said you know, it, they all got together as a team and it was a team vote and it was unanimous. If our players don't go, go, uh, the black players don't come with the team and don't stay together, then we won't, we won't go. And, um, and they, so the coach called, and I remember the person he had to have the conversation with now, but it's in the book said, you know, we will all come, but they will be a part of the roster. And, um, then it became, well, okay, they can play, but they can't stay at the hotel where you're staying at the hotel. And, but there was, I guess the silver lining of that was horrible, of course. And we're all in a different generation now. And we say, how could that happen? But as it turns out, a very prominent physician who lived, uh, in, in, in the Dallas area, he was also the head of the NAACP welcomed these athletes to stay in their home they they were chauffeured to the practice field they had maids who did their laundry for them they ate with the players they did all the team meetings and all the you know all that and uh i i was able to i didn't get to interview these guys but i i did find some wonderful articles and it was the way they saw the situation was like it opened their eyes to what it was like to be, to see a very successful black physician, head of the NAACP, to live in his home in a very, you know, nice community and be accepted. And so I, you know, I it, it, these are all teachable moments, right? Now mm-hmm. we see it from a different vantage point, but just put yourself back in 1949, what that meant to them and, but also to the teammates, right? Yeah. Right. And I think uh, you even mentioned some of the, the the locals that were African-American sort of got to see this happening, seeing these black heroes coming down from Oregon, you know, great great stars and the way they're, uh, you know, getting a chauffeured around from the the good doctors uh, folks that were were doing that. And I think, uh, some some of the white players in Oregon even ingest, you know, sort of 
again, you know, busting their chops a little bit. Hey, you guys are have it better than us here. <laughs> You're getting the maid service and getting your socks washed and everything else. You know, so I thought that was kind of a great moment in the book too. So, yeah. yeah. So I'm not going to spoil too much because you, you go through and your coverage of the cotton bowl game is, you know, impeccable. I, I loved it. You took us Thank you. almost every play by play. And uh, it had to be, you know, some great uh, research you did on your part to do that. And you also got to interject what was, you know, possibly going through your your father's head and some decisions he made. I don't know if maybe those were in some of the letters or maybe your dad talked to you about it at some point in time. But I, I, they fit right into the flow of the story. And I, I can imagine it, it happening. So I thought that was uh, very well done there, too. Thank you. Thank you. We won't give up the ending on on that and uh, go into some okay. other things. But your your father goes on and has a you know great career. He ends up uh, ending his college career at that point for some things that you right. talk about in the, in the book. Some reasons why uh, ends up uh, signing contract with the Los Angeles Rams. He's their mm-hmm. one of their fourth round draft picks and uh, has a brilliant career with them. And maybe you could just talk about your your father's uh, uh, professional playing career. My dad, uh, and how that all happened too, he still had a year of eligibility at the University of Oregon. And I, I wasn't aware of that either. So that's something that I learned in researching uh, the book was that, uh, of course, there were people that were fans, of course, that were disappointed that he didn't stay on one more year. But it was hard to fault, I think, any athlete then. Um, World War II was just over. People were, you know, anxious to get on with their lives. And um, he had an offer to play in the pros and, you know, he took it. And um, I think that would probably happen today's world, too. Oh, <laughs> you, yeah. You get paid or you don't get paid to play football. I think you're yeah, exactly. Go, go for the money. Well, yeah. And I mean, we're not talking the money that the money is today, but you know, yes, right. it was an opportunity to start a professional career in football, which he always used to say, I, I can't believe I get, you know, paid money to play a, a, a game, you know, but uh, he always felt he was very humble about that. And he was also very proud that he, uh, out of the nine children, uh, you know, eighth of nine children that he was the only one to have a college degree that meant a lot to him. Um, but anyway, he came to the Rams and Bob Waterfield was the established quarterback there. And, um, my dad was the rookie. And so his first season was 40, 49. Um, and back in the day, they used to have this kind of platoon offense. So they would have Waterfield would either start the game or dad would start the game and whoever was hot would kind of stay in for a while, but, you know, that that's how it used to be. But um, I'm very proud of the fact that um, in 1951, uh, he set a record for the most yards passing in a single game. And that that record still stands today. So that 72 years ago, that was set and it still yeah. stands, which is pretty amazing. Yeah, I, I did a write-up on some of the highest scoring offenses of all time. And, you know, of course, you know, think the NFL is more geared at offense uh, in our era that we're in right now than it was back when your dad right. played. It was right. much more of a running game than it is now. Now we're more oriented to the pass. And, right. of course, that gives more scoring and defenses are more restricted and everything. But I was surprised that 
the your that team that your your dad and Bob Waterfield were quarterbacking back and it was in that era, but they were both mm-hmm. on the team. That is like in the top five of scoring offenses all time in the National Football League. Yeah. That's up there with the Chiefs from a couple of years ago. Yeah. And some of well, these they had great some, teams. And it's uh it's well, unbelievable. They had some great, great uh receivers, right? Crazy legs Hirsch, you know that remember that name? Tom Fears. Right. Yeah. Some, <laughs> they had some great receivers and uh I, I guess I failed to say earlier when you were asking me about Jim Aiken, what Jim Aiken, we we alluded to the passing game, but it was the T formation that was that was instrumental. And so my dad was kind of at the right place at the right time when the T formation, they started using it in uh, colleges. And so that just sort of that was sort of beginning in the era with uh, in the 50s in the NFL too. the the game just opened up the passing game just opened up and he just happened to have a great arm. You know, he could throw it 50, 60 yards down the field. And um, it was kind of a wide open kind of offense. And uh, uh, he was able to take some of that to the Eagles. So he was with the Rams for nine years. And then he, um, he did not see eye to eye. A new coach was coming in. I think it was Sid Gilman and Sid Gilman wanted to call the plays and my dad um, was like, no, I, I've been calling my own plays in college. So University of Oregon, he called his own plays. The Rams, he called his own plays. And then Sid Gilman said, no, I'm going to start running the offense. And my dad said, well, then you can trade me. Just don't trade me. any. You can trade me anywhere. Just don't trade me to the Eagles because they were in, in cellar at the time. And um, that's where the, he got traded. <laughs> probably just maybe out of spite even huh <laughs> i don't i don't know but you know that's back in the day uh, players didn't have agents they you know it, it's just a different time right. um and pretty much the owners and you know owners the front office made the calls and that's how that happened <laughs> yeah, and if i could tag on to when your dad was playing college football i mean he was at uh, it's sort of World War II is sort of that transition point where right. you know, there was single wing, double wing offenses being run mm-hmm. prior, single platoon where guys would play both offense and defense right. and you wouldn't substitute. There was some more strict and stringent substitution rules at the time. And right. it was sort of that year when your dad started college, that's when things started opening up. And, you know, the, like you said, the T formation was happening down at Stanford and some other places and having right. some success. And, you know, the single wing was sort of getting phased out and single platoon was getting phased out into right, very fortuitous right. for your father that uh, that all happened. So he got to just concentrate on, playing offense and uh probably a big uh big break it's all about protecting the pocket right 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 <laughs> yeah so it's well many things that coach aiken was preaching and you had in the book it's probably what coaches are saying to this very day on mm-hmm. offenses you know protect that quarterback he's our yeah you know, he's our he's our guy and we got to make sure he's standing upright at the end of the play <laughs> there you go <laughs> Well, Karen, it's been a delight to talk to you, and I want to make sure uh, we give the opportunity for you to, let's go ahead and say the name of your book again and where folks can get a copy of it at. Yes, it's called The Dutchman and Portland's Finest Rose. Um, It's a love story inspired by the life of football legend Norm Van Brocklin. Um, My name is Karen Vanderite. And you can visit uh, my website at karenjvanderite.com. 
Um, and you also can just go to Amazon and type in the title or my author, the author's name. And um, I have written two other books. They're memoir. And I guess in a way, this book reads a little bit like a memoir um, or a love story. Um, but uh, but it's certainly a football book as well. Well, it's it's a great story to follow along with. There's the the football sprinkled in with it, just you know, puts the cherry on top, and uh, it, it's a great book. I think it's a book that probably anybody could enjoy, and probably you know, uh, many different uh, age generations could enjoy this because it's uh, it's sort of transcends time. It's it's a great story of how. Uh, relationships should be uh, both, you know, a man and wife, how, uh, you know, the family relationship and also how people can interact with each other, help each other out in times of need. And uh, I, I thought it was just great. And I was very connected to the book as a reader and I appreciate you writing it. Well, you're very kind. I appreciate it very much. And it's been a pleasure to visit with you. Same here. Okay, so folks, don't worry if you weren't able to write down uh, the information that Karen just said. Uh, we have it in the show notes. We have links to her site. Uh, we'll get you there. And also on pigskindispatch.com with the accompanying article. So no fret there. Karen Vanderwright, thank you very much for joining us and telling the story of your father and mother in, in this delightful book. And uh, I highly recommend it to everybody. It's It's been a pleasure and my honor. Thank you. That's all the football history we have today, folks. Join us back tomorrow for more of your football history. We invite you to check out our website, pigskindispatch.com, not only to see the daily football history, but to experience positive football with our many articles on the good people of the game, as well as our own football comic strip, Cleet Marks Comics. Pigskindispatch.com is also on social media outlets, Facebook, Twitter, Instagram, and don't forget the Pigskin Dispatch YouTube channel to get all of your positive football news and history. Special thanks to the talents of Mike and Gene Monroe, as well as Jason Neff for letting us use their music during our podcast. This podcast is part of the Sports History Network, your headquarters for the yesteryear of your favorite sport. You can learn more at sportshistorynetwork.com. Hey there, football fans. This is Ross, the host of the Pigskin Tales podcast. I just need a few moments of your time to talk about the host of the Pigskin Dispatch podcast, Darren Hayes. He's expanded the pig pen to search out information on the history of all team sports. It's a quest to find out about the competitors, teams, and places chronicled throughout athletic history through the uniforms and gear the participants used and wore. And he is taking you, the listener, with him on this educational journey to preserve sports history on the Sports Jersey Dispatch, found here on the Sports History Network. His newest podcast, called Jersey Dispatch, is all based on the jerseys that all the greats used to wear. You can find Darren Hayes and the Pigskin Dispatch podcast, as well as Jersey Dispatch, on your favorite podcast provider multiple times each week. So remember that, Darren Hayes, the host of the Pigskin Dispatch and Jersey Dispatch podcasts. It's found right here on the Sports History Network.